0: I'm Amy halpern Laugh,
1: And I'm John Moskow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. David Fine, superintendent of the Dover Union Free School District in Dutchess County, New York. We want to talk about some of the ethical challenges facing schools in a small rural district. Welcome, David.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Could you tell us about the Dover District and its demographics?
2: Sure. Dover is about... 90 minutes north of New York City, it's in Dutchess County, uh, which is part of the lower Hudson region, near Westchester, a stone throw away from Putnam County and Rockland. So uh, those counties sort of share a lot of the, a lot of the collaborative leadership discussions among superintendents. Um, Dutchess County is a little more rural. It's about 8,000 in the Dover community. We have about 1,400 students in our school district, and it's been a district where folks come and they stay for a very long time. Um, I recently took over for a superintendent who retired after 30 plus years um, as a, a teacher, a social science teacher, principal, assistant superintendent, superintendent. So um, it's, it's, it's really a, a nice community and growing.
0: And what does the economy look like in Dover?
2: We are typically eligible for lots of aid and grants as it relates to our our economic status. There's some um, significant poverty in areas. There's other areas that are building up. Um, So it's it's a wide range of economics within the community, um, but we would be considered probably like the second behind Poughkeepsie as it relates to social economic challenges. What are the demographics of, of the student body? Mostly significantly white. We have a diverse population as it relates to some newcomers coming into the district. Our ENL population has grown tremendously over the last five or six years. You know, our numbers are probably about 12 or 13 percent across the district, but in some grade levels, 25 percent or higher. And that's a big shift for a rural school district like Dover because programmatically there needs to be all kinds of uh, different courses and opportunities for these youngsters and their families, how they engage with the school. And ENL is uh, English as a new language? Thank you. Yeah, sorry about that. English uh, uh, as a new language, yes.
1: Do you have difficulty in recruiting teachers?
2: You know, like we are probably about 15 minutes, 20 minutes away from Putnam County, which pays more, about 35 minutes away from Westchester County, which pays significantly more. So to answer your question, John, we we do. It is a challenge. I have found, especially this year, that we have been recruiting teachers and everyone needs to pay their bills. Inflation is out of control right now. But quality of life has been something that has been a Bigger discussion at the negotiation table than anything else. You know, instead of driving 55 minutes away, instead of being in a large district, Dover is a nice small district. Everyone's doing everything. So they're really part of the change process when you're working in such a tiny, small district. Everyone is a stakeholder in, in that progress. All that said, I have lost teachers to other districts at the 23rd hour because they got ten dollars or $15,000 more on their salary but it's been less this year than I saw last year, for sure.
1: Is it hard to recruit teachers for bilingual programs?
2: Yeah, the certification, the bilingual certification is is not a, um, a typical certification that everybody has. If you have, I believe it's 25 or more students in a particular grade, you would need to create a bilingual class and they need a bilingual certification. And the bilingual certification is not something a lot of folks have. It's also in demand. So, you know, we're one of 11 or 12 districts in Dutchess County. So it's not just Dover's looking for an e or a bilingual teacher. So are my fellow colleagues. So we're in competition with each other. We do communicate with each other if there was a good second or third candidate that we didn't take because um, we're all under similar challenges as it relates to filling those positions. We do have a something from the state, and I'm really hopeful that they're going to do it again this year, which is called Teachers of Tomorrow. It's a grant that we wrote about a month and a half ago. And basically, it's to help rural school districts um, recruit and provide a little bump in their first year salary. So we might be able to put like $2,400 or $3,000 just on their first year salary. And, and sometimes that's That's just what's needed to to lock it up.
0: So when bilingual teachers come to your school, aside from their skills, obviously, in speaking both languages and communicating in both languages, what other skills do they need to to help them work with these new immigrants?
2: They need to be able to have a a global approach to the student, uh, engaging their parents. Uh, It's not just about... uh, speaking or not even speaking their language, because that's not necessarily a criteria, but they also need to be able to administer the curriculum in a a good way. They're also needing to do assessments and use that data from the assessments to figure out what's challenging this youngster from being successful in the classroom. Is it the language? Is it literacy? Is it a learning disability? Is it some special ed things? So they can get mixed in. I think schools have done a much better job recently with regard to the differentiation between language issues and a special ed issue. Back in the day, there was a lot of that dual classification he or she is EL and also special ed. Now, um, school districts are doing a lot of intervention, responding to what the students need and really digging into the data to find out is it simply a language? Is it simply some other disability that we can address through special ed services?
0: And you have the facilities to do that sort of evaluation?
2: We do have the facilities to do that evaluation. You know, our e folks are a part of that process. We also have a director of literacy and we also have a CSE office, the committee of special ed office, and they work very closely together because it could be it, it could be a real problem when a youngster is duly classified because you're not necessarily addressing or targeting what is the real issue. And now you have a youngster that, and it does happen, but now you have a youngster that a lot of cooks are on the fire, and we're not actually looking at what what the what the real challenge is.
1: A number of the ENL students are immigrant students from Latin America, primarily from uh, Ecuador and Guatemala. What
2: brings these families to Dover? When we spoke last, I spoke with my assistant superintendent, who uh, was a teacher here and also grew through the ranks and also lives in the community. And I asked her that question. I think folks are migrating out of the city. There's more elbow room. Uh, In some regards, there is financially, it's a better move for them and their families. Uh, We do have uh, railroads, a Metro North, close by or within a stone throw of Dover it's beautiful, you know, it's green, it's cleaner. um, Maybe from uh, other places that they, that they may want to, you know, from the compacts of the, of a a city life. So I think those were the reasons it wasn't anything like a a eye opening, but those seem to be the, you know, the bigger, the bigger reasons why folks are, are, are coming up and it's a good school district. Their kids are in a good place in a good school district. The school district itself, like I I mentioned, is there's some been some significant changes over the years quickly with, you know, a a rural school district sort of educating a, a homogeneous group of youngsters in a generational sort of manner. Moms and dads went through Dover, children, grandparents, all that kind of stuff. And it's a beautiful thing. And as of recently, you know, the influx of different uh, families coming into the community has been, I feel, and I, I know other folks would co-sign to that, embraced and open to uh, integration and, and figuring out what we can do to accommodate. The students when interrupted formal education, the site students, you know, they need a whole different sort of track when they come into a school. Uh, and a small school district is limited in some ways, because we have, you know, a program for our bilingual youngsters or e youngsters, but a student who's 16, who hasn't been in school in 10 years and just was dumped into, you know, New York state, what do we do with him or her? So we're, we're working really hard with our counseling department and um, we're fortunate enough to have some additional aid money to boost up our e program, which includes these students with interrupted formal education. So we're going to be able to create what they call a newcomer program if we have the numbers. And there's a commitment to that, knowing that a youngster in a newcomer program may or may not graduate in the typical four years, because the first year might just be, this is what a regents is. This is what algebra is. You know, here's how we get into and out of the school. All, you know, basic things like that, survival, uh, getting parents engaged in the, in the school district, um, which goes back to Amy's question of like, what's a good bilingual teacher or, you teacher doing, bringing those folks into the school system, getting them engaged and, and giving them permission to advocate and engage with their child. It's really important.
0: That seems to touch on this whole concept of inclusivity, no? know.
2: It really does. And and the kids since I've been here, the student body has been pretty active in uh, advocating for that inclusivity. Last summer, I can when I came late spring last year, I, I can feel the student body wanting that voice and wanting to engage in those conversations. So we did a voluntary meeting over the summer to plan out the school year, uh, and we had about 15 kids meet me on Zoom over the summer and voluntarily just talk about what we can do this school year. Uh, Month to month, you know, nationally, they have different months ranging from autistic awareness and things like that, Um, pride month, things like that. So it was nice to sort of live it with them this year.
0: Wow. So aside from the school's primary purpose of educational institutions, you seem to be playing other roles in the community
2: a lot of roles Amy you know there's there's not you know a a movie theater or bowling alley um, used to be from what I remember or heard so the school is definitely a big part of the community Um, Dutchess County is it's a large it's a large area and we are on the eastern side of Dutchess County there's sort of a mountain that divides us so this side of the county has uh, a few school districts but the re, the resources and the agencies are limited. So if you wanted to you know get some possibly mental health support or you needed some uh, assistance in some areas you you would have to go to the other side of the to the county over the mount which is a good 35 40 minutes. Uh, last summer there was a, a STEAM science technology you know, engineering, art, and math program in a community in Dutchess County. But it was a good 40 minutes away. And I pushed these two students to go. It was free. Mm-hmm. And it was hard because our families work one, two, three jobs uh, to get them over there. But they did it. They did it for a full week. It was like a whole tech program. And I remember at the end, they did like this cool graduation at the church over in the, um, the city of Poughkeepsie. And uh, the mom, both of the moms said, this is the first time we've been out of our community because this is where we kind of stay. All that said, the school plays a big role in the community, which I love and it definitely fits my style. I like engaging with the families and the community uh, and bringing them in to be part of the solution, to have ideas and suggestions, to advocate, create evening events, movie events, different weekend events for them. Uh, And the teachers and the administrators have been great uh, being a part of that as well.
1: Youth mental health is obviously a a big concern all over the country. And given the distances involved, what are some of the ways that you're able to support students' mental health on a day-to-day basis? And what are some of the challenges that, that you face, you know,
2: as a more rural school district? You know, it's more now than ever across all schools, period, not just in New York State. And there's a lot of focus on the mindset with the teachers. It's not just, look, algebra is important. Physics is important. The regions are, you know, assessments, graduation, academics. But the social emotional piece of our students are is is as paramount as two plus two. So we're continually talking about that with our schools and our our staff because it's hard if you you're not cut from that elk if you don't if you don't really live that and believe that you just kind of go in and you do your thing as it relates to the curriculum and you know you do your thing and you know we have been real mindful of having those conversations um, remembering to relationships are primary and paramount uh, we're also bringing in a, a program that our school counselors are going to implement K-8. through eight. We also, Dover has been engaged in a couple of different programs where it's focused on the behavioral responses of how we look at trauma with students and how we respond and how we report things. All this said, there's not a significant amount of agencies that can support us outside the school. Parents have to drive. We're, we're trying to figure out how we can Boost that up, not just for Dover, but for our neighboring school districts on this side of the county.
0: Could you speak a little more about those relationships?
2: You know, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to trust. Parents have their own frame of reference with respect to school. Sometimes we're the enemy, and sometimes we're not the enemy. And when we are the enemy, just because they had a bad experience in their school doesn't mean it has to be the same here. So it's a training with our administrative team about how to respond, how not to personalize. One of the greatest common factors we have with families is their child. We want the best for them as much as they do. Regardless of where they're coming from or how they respond or how they act, most families, what I have seen in my career, they want the best for their baby. If we kind of meet there, I think parents feel that and they get that. Building relationships with children is primary. They need to be comfortable with you. You can't just be a tie. You can't just be, you know, some person in a suit or nice shoes. It's not why I'm not wearing a tie today, but, and that takes time. You know, that takes time just because I happen to be the superintendent doesn't mean I'm in charge of his or her sort of agency. I'm in charge of some rules, but, you know, they also have a say in the, in in the process, going back to just basic trust.
1: Speaking of relationships, what's the process of building relationships among staff and faculty? As a relatively recent newcomer, as a superintendent, um, how do you go about looking at the culture of the school and seeing directions that you'd like to see it tweaked in, if there are some?
2: Well, it's a good question, especially when you, you step into a position And the the prior administration has done a a wonderful job and did a great job, but there's a history there. So for the, probably up to maybe yesterday, my decisions may still echo in the brains of others as prior administration. Um, So it takes time to build those relationships. It takes time for people to know that my door is open, being visible, uh, being engaged with the schools and the community following through on things you're going to say. Um, I've learned early on that you don't want to just speak up here to your staff. You want to speak uh, in terms of manageable, attainable goals so they can feel it and see it, not, not say things and it sounds good, but never comes to fruition. And that's just taking small chunks, but, I realized that as a as a new person in the school district, they're not automatically going to love you and they're not automatically going to not love you. And at the end of the day, I think those feelings will be, you know, depending on who the who the person is, will uh, will feel how they want to feel. But just being honest with them, transparent, clear, consistent. How are
0: those relationships both among the faculty members and between the faculty and the students impacted by the pandemic?
2: I think the pandemic just put everybody on its head for a couple of years and we're still sort of in a hangover state. Mm -hmm. I started where there were masks. My prior district, I was there for a number of years, so I knew everybody with or without a mask. Coming here, it was really, really hard. It was really hard to engage with to create those relationships for obvious reasons. Um, so once we were, um, once the regulations changed, it allowed, I felt like it allowed me to be more like David and it allowed others to be like themselves. And as, as we've all experienced, there were plenty of people that I felt like I just met him for the first time. Meanwhile, I've talked to them a whole bunch of times. It was hard. And even with kids and it's still, it's taken a while. It's not like it went away. You know, it's taken a while for kids to not feel comfortable without a mask, but to almost reteach themselves how to socialize and engage. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And, you know, I want to do things next year where it takes us away from technology, put the Chromebook away, no technology Tuesday, let's go to good old chalkboards and paper and pencil for a day and just talk to each other and engage with each other. And it took the teachers a little while to to do that as well, because they were so used to this forum as opposed to groups and kids getting up in classroom projects. I definitely have seen, um, as we transitioned into the spring, more and more of that happening, which is just a win-win.
0: And what social-emotional issues are you seeing on returning to school, aside from this sort of relearning to be students and teachers?
2: I don't know if there's necessarily a word for it, but there's definitely a higher level of anxiety just out there in general. I think advocacy for the, for themselves, you know, we have students that haven't been on a field trip in like two or three years, so they haven't been out of their house or like the school, so that unto itself can do something you know, a little, little, little something to, to, to an individual. So it's not anything that we're, we're necessarily saying this is why they're like that, but it, it's definitely having an effect on, you know, the opportunities that, that they now are starting to have.
1: What are some of the ways that you've been able to work with the students and, and the faculty during this kind of transition back to at least not wearing masks?
2: You know, I mean, it's simple things like field days. It's simple things like family nights. It's simple things like bringing the student staff faculty game back, bringing the community back together, sporting events, doing things on the, on the weekend at the school, whether it's spirit, spirit days and things like that. Yesterday, this week in particular, you know, we have two more weeks of school left. So there's a lot of activities going on. So our current seventh graders are at West Point right now. We had the fifth graders yesterday swimming um, in a, um, you know, at a park and they did like a barbecue. Like It seems simple, but those are things that those fifth graders didn't have for three years. And if you do the math, those, that's the second grader. So typically they would do that second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Now this is the first time. So we're capitalizing on anything and everything we can do in a safe, productive manner for these students um, outside the classroom in a, in, a, in a positive way. Just celebrating the fact of this is what we do in school. We'll teach and learn. We'll, we'll, we'll provide a rigorous curriculum. But there's also s- such great opportunity to recognize and celebrate things that we're doing in and out of the classroom. Yesterday we had something called a field day at one of our elementary schools. It was like a, a, a wedding because all the elementary school kids were balancing eggs on spoons and having little relay races. And every mom, dad, grandparent, guardian, brother, sister were there just celebrating the kids. Uh, And I asked some other staff that have done this for a while, and it's always been a well oiled machine. But there was just a, a wonderful number of community members that came to be a part of that.
1: It's obviously a time of polarization around the country. And a lot of times this has been coming out at school board meetings and in terms of school curricula and books and so forth. How has that played out at all? in dover
2: i've seen i've seen uglier things occur but there there is there has been some political discourse or desire to have more political discourse conversations between faculty staff and children stemming a lot from the student body which is really cool uh, and it's not necessarily coming from a place of I want you to believe what I believe, but I just want to have a safe space to express myself. We've added more opportunities for that to occur. And honestly, it came from awareness and professional development with staff for them to feel comfortable. I was a special ed social studies teacher. There's folks that are math teachers. They went to school to teach math, not to have political discourse in their geometry class. But today, we're looking to be able to be a hybrid of that. So there's been a lot of conversations with staff around how they navigate this uh, because staying silent only makes it worse. We've definitely been able to engage in that. You know, at the board meetings, the board has been extremely supportive, inclusivity, uh, equitable opportunities for our students. Our community want the best for all of the students. I think society in general, there's, there's definitely a fear of, you know they're they're force feeding things down our children's throats or into the school systems. We've had those conversations, but it, it hasn't been to the degree of distraction. Uh, nor are we looking to do either of those.
0: Could you give us an example of how some of the kids have initiated those conversations?
2: Sure. You know it was done non verbally when I first came here. I can just you can just feel the energy. You can feel the um, the desire to to have open conversations. So I I sort of grabbed some youngsters that were in some after-school clubs, like we have a few after-school clubs that engage in these discussions, young voices, things like that, Uh, and just talking with them and bringing them to the board meeting and having conversations at the board level. You know, one of the frustrating things I found was they all were sort of talking from the same pulpit. They were all from the same cloth, um, and that's not the world. So I asked them the next time we talk, grab a friend who does not believe in what you believe. Um, and I have friends like that. So we did that and and our group doubled. And, you know, we were able to have a better conversation around, around the issues at hand. And I'm sensitive to that, you know, I'm not expecting every single teacher to do this, but there's a a, a nice group of teachers and even this year we did some professional development with some that are more and more comfortable you know engaging in these discussions because if you're teaching you know the renaissance and something comes up around the wall and the teacher can't engage in that it doesn't just go away it it comes out in other ways so i've been really proud of how our folks have been able to sort of like navigate those discussions with our kids stay on track with the Renaissance, but also touch on students that, I'm using the wall as a metaphor, like or don't like, you know, things like that.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't talked about?
2: No, I think this has been a wonderful experience. I've been looking forward to this. I I appreciate everything, John and Amy, and uh, thank you, it's been great. Thank you, Dr. David Fine of Dover Union Free
1: School District.
0: And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends and colleagues. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. That's hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denshi. Until next week.